Kristen Hanna, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your new novel, I'm going to go for the pun. I'm so sorry. I'm going to apologize now. <laughs> Your new novel is A Force of Nature, The Four Winds. It has been out since January of this year. It is actually one of our best books of the year so far for Barnes & Noble. And it is, yep, it's a force of nature. <laughs> there might actually be a handful of people who haven't yet read your book. Can we set mm. this up without spoiling it? Sure. I, I love that opportunity. Thank you so much. And it's great to be here. Obviously, I'm a huge Barnes & Noble shopper, and I'm really happy to be able to talk to my tribe here. So The Four Winds is really a story set during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, which were you know a very hard time in American history. And it focuses on one woman and one family, and ultimately the, the difficulty of the times and the drought that sweeps through Panhandle, Texas, and the Great Plains really sort of puts them all in great jeopardy. And and my lead character, Elsa, has to ultimately decide whether to stay and fight for the farm or to go west in the hopes that she will be able to save her children. It is an epic story. And Elsa really finds an incredible amount of strength in this book. She starts out as part of a very cold, withholding family in Texas. She is a big reader. Um, <laughs> yes. She, she shares that with a few other characters in some of your other books as well. Her reading taste seems remarkably similar to Lenny's in The Great Alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have uh, unveiled me here. That's because it's my reading taste. <laughs> That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And we are going to come back to that because there's really some great, great work on that list. But Elsa's journey is pretty terrific and slightly unexpected. She finds a surrogate mother in her mother-in-law, Rose Martinelli. And suddenly Elsa has skills. She's probably my favorite character I've written to date with 25 books or something. That's really saying something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because her journey is just so beautiful. As you say, she begins in this family where sort of her self-esteem and her feeling about her own worthiness have been squelched. Mm -hmm. And she, like all of us, believes what our parents and our peers say about us. And I think that is a journey that all of us have to undertake at some point to get out from under the who we are and who we thought we were in our journey of selfhood. And so she ends up becoming a member of the Martinelli family by marrying into it. And that is really the beginning for her, the first time that she is loved and valued. And I loved the relationship between Rose, her mother-in-law, and Elsa, as Elsa begins to come into her own and to realize that she does have value. But I think, like for many women, it's really motherhood that shapes and defines her. It's really when you get to this point where other people, your children, are relying on you for strength. I think as a woman, you find that strength, whether you think it's there or not. And if you can't find it, you pretend it's there because that is sort of her job during these dark times to save her children. You started writing this in 18 or 19 after The Great Alone? Yes, four years ago, okay. whenever that was. <laughs> okay. So four years ago, you sit down, you start writing this epic American story told through the voice of one woman and her family. 
And we're going to come back to her daughter because her daughter is also a fantastic character. But you sit down four years ago and you end up accidentally writing an incredibly timely novel set in 19, well, it opens in 1921 and runs through 36 or 35. Yeah, just before the war, I think. It was a fascinating process. I set out to write Well, let me back up here. So Mm -hmm. obviously, as many people know, a few years ago, I wrote a book called The Nightingale. And that book sort of coincided with the rise of social media. So for the first time in all of these years, I was hearing what people were saying as they read my books, because generally before then, I would tour and go to bookstores when the book was new in hardcover and no one had read it. And so you don't necessarily see the whole arc of what your readers are saying. And I had set out in the Nightingale to write a women's lost history book because I've been on this obsessive quest lately to return women to sort of our place in the historical landscape and and show how amazingly strong and resilient and courageous women have been throughout history. And so following the Nightingale, I began to want to write a novel that was quintessentially American, but was the same kind of book that would have the same scope, the same grit and impact on women. And so I began looking through American history. And what I'm really looking for when I write a historical novel is a time period that both feels unexplored to me or a a story that feels unexplored or unknown, and something that resonates with today, something that we can take lessons from. And so when I found the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl period of the Great Plains was very much similar to a climate change kind of issue because it had been impacted by man. And then we had the migrant workers and the sort of immigration issue that our country is grappling with. So it was very easy to see those parallels. And that's really how I began to put women back in the narrative of this time and to remind people that it wasn't just the men who survived this time period. And then, of course, I turned the book in after three years of writing it to my editor to be done. We had the cover everything about March 1st of twenty. And so literally, I turned the book in and three weeks later, we're in lockdown. And I think it was six weeks after that, my husband's best friend passes away from COVID. And so it was this sudden onslaught where I realized that this book was going to speak to a whole different kind of hard times than I had expected. And to be honest, in the beginning, it was a little nerve wracking because you're sort of wondering, as this pandemic was beginning, are people going to read? Do they want to read a book about hard times? You know, what's going to happen? But ultimately, I discovered that my readers took away from it the same thing that I did in my research and in the writing. And that is this appreciation for the grit and the strength and the endurance and the resilience of of people and American people in particular. And so I think ultimately it's a very uplifting message. And I think it puts a lot of the pandemic in perspective as well. And as much as it is Elsa's story, you're writing about community and 
a couple of different ways. There's the community that Elsa leaves behind in Texas when she joins the Martinelli family. Then there's the community that she builds with the Martinellis and other farmers and what that looks like. And then when she and her children leave for California, because they have to, they have to for her youngest son's health and also for work and for the future. They become part of a community in this roadside, what should we call? It was a ditch bank camp when the people first came west like that. There there was nowhere for them to stay. They didn't have the money to stay anywhere. Most of them, like my character, well, not most, but many, had been farmers and the drought and the falling crop prices and everything had sort of destroyed them economically, 13 million people were out of work. And so they are living in these terrible conditions when they get there. And yet I tried really hard. Elsa makes the first real friend of her life there and sort of understands how a girlfriend can lift your spirits and keep you standing and and how we stand up for each other and help each other. And I think that one of the messages of the book that, again, going back to the pandemic and not knowing what it was going to be, but one of the messages of the book is one of simple kindness. This message of be kind to each other because you just have no idea what someone else is going through at any given time. And I think that's a message that we need right now. We need to remember to accept each other and be kind and listen to differing opinions and just be our best selves instead of our worst selves. And care for one another. Yeah. That's a big part of this community that she becomes part of is that mutual aid. I have a little bit. I will give you a little bit of my little bit because a little bit is better than nothing. Right. When you're setting out to write a book like this, and you're covering more than a decade in this family's life, and actually there is an epilogue in Four Winds set in 1940, where we get a really nice moment Mm -hmm. with a family member. How do you start the research for a project like this? It's a fascinating process, the research, the formulation of the idea. For me, the initial story is as close to magic as this whole process has, because I'm a very sort of analytical, workmanlike girl. But finding the story that I want to tell is difficult for me. And in this book, it was really, as you can tell from reading the book, the spine of this story is the historical time period. So there was so much drama in the time period that a big part of this book is essentially man versus nature, man versus man. And so I didn't need the huge plot. But what I did need to do is in deciding that I wanted to tell the story of women during the Great Depression, there's a million stories within that. And so what I do is I first read about the Great Depression and what was going on. And that sort of leads me to, okay, do I want a rich person, a poor person, a farmer? And and it becomes this question of which do I feel is the most underrepresented and most interesting story. And then in the research, of course, then you say, well, where do I set it? So you research the Great Depression and I came across the Dust Bowl. And, you know, I'll tell you, as a girl from the West Coast, I knew almost nothing about, I mean, you know, I knew there was a Dust Bowl, but I had no idea the tragedy of it and the scope of it. And so once I discovered that, I thought, well, I can't be the only person 
that doesn't know this. And then that fed so much into this idea of we humans and the idea of stewardship of the land and and how we become good stewards of the earth sort of thing. And so then it just goes from there. So if I'm the Dust Bowl, then after I've done all the major research, I get to the memoirs. That's really sort of the bread and butter. You know, I remember reading memoirs of a woman who said, you know, the dust storm hit and centipedes and spiders crawled out from the walls of their house. And I thought that is just too cool not to <laughs> not to put in a book. So that's what it is. It's then my job is to take these hundreds of hours of research and basically make sure that you know as much about this time period as possible at the end of it, but you have been entertained along the way. And invested in the characters. I was really, really invested in Elsa and her daughter, Loretta, who is an adolescent. She's 12 yeah. <laughs> when the bulk of the book happens and anyone who's survived a 12-year-old. <laughs> exactly. And you know, what's interesting too is I think this is the first time I've had this thought, but Loretta essentially is like a 12-year-old during the pandemic where your whole life is taken away, your social life, their school is stopped and you're already a 12-year-old. And so you're already potentially problematic. And then you're locked in this farmhouse with your family. And one of the real challenges of historical fiction in my mind is this idea that you take all of this history and you synthesize it and you, you use it in your novel. But you still have to be character forward. You still have to be plot forward. And I think where a lot of historical fiction stumbles is it's textbooky. And so I work really, really hard at making sure that the characters are what you'll remember as much as the history. I think readers of The Nightingale and The Great Alone would certainly agree that you have done just that. A lot of readers think The Nightingale was your first sort of big blockbuster bestseller. And in fact, it was Firefly Lane in 2008, where you really start digging into these themes of women's empowerment and women coming into their own. We see it in The Great Alone, we see it in The Nightingale, and we certainly see it throughout The Four Winds. Can we talk about the evolution of your work and how we go from Firefly Lane to Nightingale into The Great Alone into Four Winds? It's this interesting journey. And I think maybe it ultimately mirrors my own growing up. And Firefly Lane, I wrote when I was 40 years old in the year, I believe that my son left my empty nest. And it was a book that was a look at both my own personal childhood, my years in school, my degree, my relationship with my mother, my mother's breast cancer, all of that. And that was the book where even though it was, I don't know, maybe my 15th or 16th novel, that was the book where I understood what it was I have to say as a woman and who I'm talking to. And I think part of it is simply, like I said, I'm growing up. I understood motherhood better. I understood the importance of girlfriends better. As we get older, we really understand what you want to keep around you and what you want to teach to your children. And I think that's what it is. My books are this message in a way to 
my my daughter-in-law, my grandchildren, to all women coming up, know our own history, know your own power, and celebrate it. What's your favorite part of the work as you're writing? Oh, that's an easy one. I like editing. And I think I'm an unusual editor. I didn't know this for a long time, but now that I Now I do because I edit in a very different way than most people. I'm a very blowtorch kind of person and I throw hundreds of pages away and I'm constantly letting the work ultimately dictate where I'm going. A lot of authors will talk about their story vision. My vision is what I have to say. And so there's so many ways to do that, that I tend to move through very fluidly. And an example of that I can give you with both the Nightingale and the Four Winds is that in the Four Winds, after doing my year of research, and then my first year of writing the first draft of the book, Elsa was not a character. So I wrote 450 pages of an entirely different book. And when Elsa walked on, I knew, I thought this is something special. And then of course, I'm a human. So I thought, ignore that and just keep doing what you're doing. But ultimately, I follow those sorts of things. And the same with the Nightingale. After a year of research and the first year of writing, there was no beyond. It was just Isabel's story. And I finished Isabel's story. And I realized that there was too much unsaid. And I, you know, I had done all this great research and there were other stories out there and I realized I needed to open it up. And so that's what I do. And that's my favorite part. I'm looking for what's working and I build on that and I throw away what isn't working. That's terrific. You walk a very, very fine line balancing the emotional payoff of the story and your characters' lives with narrative momentum. And it's really exciting. You write literary page turners, which isn't (laughs) really what a lot of folks do. (laughs) Well, and you know, I've had a chance to study this phenomenon up close and personal. And it's interesting to me because if I get a criticism routinely, Mm -hmm. it is that my beginnings are slow. And I have come to accept that maybe that is true. But the reason they're slow is I am taking a lot of time to make sure you know Elsa or Vian or Lenny inside and out. You know everything they're thinking, you know their feelings, you know what drives them. And so then when at about page 100, when the book starts kicking into high gear and the stakes become increasingly higher, which is to me sort of the definition of commercial fiction, you are so hopefully invested in these characters that what happens to them really matters. And so that's the way I do it. I don't know how other authors do it, but I just take the time to really create and layer a character. And then I tend to put them through impossibly hard times to create who they're going to be and to watch them form in front of you. In your last three books, you've gone from World War II France to 1970s Alaska and not cruise ship Alaska, frontier (laughs) Alaska. You have to have a place to store your food and you need to know how to make your own food. This is not a condo on the bay, Alaska. No. To 
America during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Was there something you learned between each of those books that you took to the next one? Or did you simply decide, this is the story I feel like telling now? That's such an interesting question. And I don't know that I've been asked that before. I've learned a couple of things along the way. The Great Alone was probably the the most important of the lessons of this new era of my career. And the reason was that following the Nightingale was creatively difficult because you get to this point, I could tell before it ever came out from the way readers were responding to it at my publisher and at booksellers. And we sent out early ARCs to BNN and everybody. And I could tell that it at least had the chance of really being something special. And so I'm enough of a realist to think to myself, okay, now I have to write something that cannot be compared to The Nightingale. Everybody said, write another World War II book. Hey, write a sequel. And I did not want to do that. And so what I did was I made this decision to write a book that was completely out of my wheelhouse. Well, it was a domestic thriller, essentially. And fortunately, The Nightingale did so well that nobody was asking me for another book anymore because it just kept selling. So I ended up having what writers never get, which is time to have an emotional meltdown. And what I did was I basically wrote a version of The Great Alone that wasn't me and didn't work. And I knew it didn't work. And I knew it didn't work because I'm a huge thriller reader. And I, for whatever, well, I know the reason. The reason is because I want you to know everything. I don't want to hide things from my reader. And so anyway, bottom line, after a year, I pulled another one of these editorial quick changes and I took the Alaska setting. I took all the characters. I changed the time period and I changed the novel. And what I learned was that It's never about success, not following it, not leading it, not caring about it. I write the book that speaks to me that I believe readers will follow, and I just keep doing it. That's how you get to a long career. You just keep showing up. What's your favorite part of writing historical fiction? Oh, boy. I am a secret nerd. I am a huge fantasy reader. And there is an element of world building in historical fiction that I love. In contemporary fiction, I'm describing something that we all know. So I have to do it well. But in historical fiction, there's this sense that I need to transport you And I need to create and define a world that you've never walked in. And I think that's probably my favorite part. So let's talk about you as a reader, because we know you share reading tastes with Lenny and Loretta. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have it as a touchstone for you, which I love that. It just makes (sighs) me so happy that you carry around books. We all have them. We We all have that thing that we love. So let's talk about what you love in a thriller and what you love in fantasy. I get the world building, but there's more. You like to be told a story, don't you? I do. And it's not just any story. I mean, The Hobbit is the perfect example because here you have a book that is straight up about friendship, heroism, and love. And it's about these little hobbits 
rising to the level of courage. And it's this portrait of courage, not as something that is easy, but as something that is incredibly difficult. And it's like Elsa going West. You do this because you are putting someone else's needs first and you are willing to step up and be the hero. I love that. That actually makes me want to reread The Hobbit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it really and, does. Completely different interpretation of so many people. I'm like, I could reread that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And, and I think the reason I like suspense, good suspense, mm-hmm. is that it frees the writer in me. I don't edit it. I don't ask myself what they could have done better. I don't wish that I had written it. I just lose myself in the story. And and I love reading something that I can't put down. So that's my favorite beach read. Is there anything you've been reading lately that you're dying to recommend that you that everyone should just be rushing out to, to pick up now? We begin at the end. Chris Whitaker. Oh my gosh. Fell in love with the characters. Absolutely loved it. I also discovered William Kent Kruger this year, who I had not read before. And I've read his recent Lightning Strike, which is, I believe, coming out soon. And that sort of is an origin story. So that was one of those great moments as a reader where you discover an author who has a ton of backlist. And it's kind of like opening a secret drawer. I thought that was really, really great. And and this year was the first year, amazingly, that I read Colson Whitehead. And I was just knocked back by the Nickel Boys. Harlem Shuffle. It's coming. I can't wait. You, you, (laughs) it is a caper flick. It is Harlem in 1964. It is everything you want in a novel. You will love this book. You will absolutely, absolutely love it. And you know what I love is he's the perfect example of the kind of writer who you'll read anything from him, where thematically, maybe there's this similarity that runs through everything and there's this gorgeous prose, but he's not like a one trick pony. And I just, as a reader and as a writer, I really admire that. As a reader, I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. But I'm like you, I want to be told a story and I appreciate great language. I don't necessarily need to connect with the characters. I don't need to necessarily like characters. I do need to understand why they are the way they are. Yeah. But I think that's a whole separate conversation. Lareda. Can we go back to Lareda for a second? Sure. In Four Winds, I realize we're sort of wandering around a little bit, but she's got a librarian who does her a solid. I know. I love that librarian. We all love that librarian. But are we going to get Lareda's story someday? Maybe. So another interesting side point. The first version of this book that I wrote, like I said, which was not Elsa, it was Loretta's story. And it went on for 400 pages past this. So the good news is that I love Loretta and I want to write her story. The bad news is that in a sense, I've already written it for me. And so I need to find a different story for her. It will not be next, but I certainly hope I will do it. I'm just curious. I think she went on to do some interesting things. (laughs) I think she did go on to do some very interesting things. I don't know if Alaska's in her future. (laughs) I feel like she's got (laughs) a wandering, she's got a wandering eye. I don't know where she ends up, but I don't think she's back in, yeah, I don't think she's back in Texas. I don't know. Well, I'll just wait. I can be Okay. All right. (laughs) 
I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier with the hidden stories of women. There's a really important true story that you discovered while you were researching the four winds, and it involves a writer called Sonora Babb, who I'd never heard of, but John Steinbeck had. <laughs> well, so here's the story. It was fascinating. I tried so hard to, to put this in the four winds. I really wanted to, and I just wasn't able to. So I'm, I'm trying to tell people about it. So what happened is this young woman, Sonora, was a budding writer and want to be journalist. She came from the Dust Bowl, I believe Kansas, maybe Texas. I'm not sure. Anyway. And so she came West and one of the jobs she got during the depression was she worked at the migrant camp in Arvin, California, which was the basis for John Steinbeck's weed patch camp. And my book predates this. So this is before the California government had built a camp for the migrants. But so they built this camp and her job was taking notes and talking to the migrants, finding out what they needed, how they got there, any information she could get on them. So she interviewed all of them daily and made these copious notes and handed all of her notes to her boss, who was a man named Tom Collins. And meanwhile, she is writing what she considers her great American novel about the migrant camp and the journey west. It is so good that she sells it to Bennett Cerf at Random House, and he tells her this is the great American novel. Unbeknownst to poor Sonora, Tom Collins, her boss, is giving all of these notes to his friend, John Steinbeck, who is writing The Grapes of Wrath. She is just finishing her novel, which is called Whose Names Are Unknown, and The Grapes of Wrath comes out and is an instantaneous hit. It is such a big hit that everybody from Bennett Surf all the way down in New York says to Sonora, your novel will never be published. And it is not published, in fact, until, gosh, I want to say 2006. I'm not sure. But all of her original notes are at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin. So I was able to read all of them. And it's sad in so many ways because her book is so different from The Grapes of Wrath. So they wouldn't have been competing anyway. I just heard from somebody online, I think, that that they've just republished Whose Names Are Unknown. It was out of print when I was researching, but I think it's back in print now. That's really exciting. What do you want readers to take away from your books? I mean, we sort of touched on it a little bit. You know, that's an interesting question. I don't know that that is up to me. And I don't know that that's something that I set out to do. It's much more for me, a deep dive into these times of history for me, because I am interested and I want to know this. And I would say what I love to hear most from readers, honestly, is I couldn't put it down. So I am, like you said, I am trying to write a page turner. Obviously, I want to write it as beautifully as I can. And I want it to have meaning and I want it to educate people and inform people. And I want it to be memorable the way great books are. And you know, I've seen that a couple times in my career, books like Firefly Lane, books like The Nightingale, The Great Alone, even where it becomes a, a part of the fabric of the reader. 
And that's an amazing and remarkable thing. It's kind of lightning in a bottle. I love it. What's next for you? Well, you know, interestingly enough, as a sort of serious writer girl who's been doing this a long time, I had sort of an unexpected difficulty with the pandemic. I was not as prolific and as focused as I like to be. And so it took me a while, you know, like I said earlier, the magic is the idea. It took me a while to find the story that I wanted to spend three years on. And so I have finally done that. I've finally started writing again. But since I have no idea what the book is actually going to turn out to be, (laughs) all I can say at this point is it's another American novel that is sort of another look at women's lives during a very formative time in American history. Oh, that's really exciting. It is. Is there anything we missed for Four Winds? There's so much I don't want to give away because I think it's really important for readers to travel with Elsa. Yeah. I'm a big believer in not spoiling stuff. I appreciate other readers, that. Right? It's just kind yeah. of like, that's the fun of it. I love calling it a literary page turner because I think that's genius. So thank you. I'm quoting you from now oh, on. <laughs> feel free because that's honestly, I went back and I reread Nightingale and I reread Great Alone, hot on the heels of rereading huh. um, Four Winds. So I spent a lot of time with you in the last yeah. and it's, But here's the thing. It's delightful because the pages fly and they fly in a way where I'm still invested in the story. Amazing. I, I appreciate a good thriller. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, yeah. I, I'm right. happy. Me to, too. I'm just a big book nerd. I mean, I'll read anything. But to be as invested in these women and their dudes, because I do think of them as the women sort of first and the dudes, they're not peripheral. They're not, but the women are the ones who are undergoing the biggest transformations. You know what I think it is, Miwa? Mm -hmm. I think it's that I am a pretty ordinary person who has this all notwithstanding lived an ordinary, get married, have kids, have a job kind of life. And I think at our very heart, there is a universal female experience. We all struggle with body image and self-esteem and finding our voice. And Elsa's the best example in my whole career of a woman finding her voice, being silent in the beginning and in the end, learning that her strength is sufficient, not just to stand up for herself, but to stand up for others. And I think we women, well, I should say I personally still struggle with conflict, with standing up for myself, with fighting my own battles. And I think it's so important to pass this along. And I think that's a big part of the appeal of these books is these women are learning to stand their ground. I think that's really an incredibly important point to make. And I think that's that, a that great is a place great to line. <laughs> Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.